2: Find a location near you at Bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
3: This is a crowd podcast.
0: We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Buddy Holly, Ben-Hur, Space Monkey, Mafia, Hula Hoops, Castro, Edsel is a no-go. An Edsel what? What is an Edsel? (laughs) It's a no-go. Aren't you listening to the song? Hello again and welcome to episode 74 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast based on Billy Joel's pop opus that set the syllabus to school us on the headlines, heroes and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick.
1: I'm Tom Fordyce.
3: Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might just have something to do with Edsel is a no-go.
1: Hang on a sec, you're saying Edz- Edsel.
3: Edsel. Not Edsel. Not Ed cell. Not Edsel. I'm you're learning tri- already. You're, t- you're trying to put a fancy little spin on it. Is this a car that entered into your uh, consciousness at all?
1: In, in no way whatsoever, Katie, has Edsel ever entered into my consciousness <laughs> before today's <laughs> episode. I don't even think there was a, like a little toy car in my collection at home as a kid um, from the Edsel range.
3: Yeah, so the big whoop about Edsel is that it was severely, severely hyped uh, at the end of the 50s. It was going to be the car of the future. And then just, I think, was a little bit overhyped. And for various reasons that we'll get into in a minute, just didn't really hit the road and roll down into any kind of success. It just instead sailed over a cliff and became a meme before memes even existed for failure.
1: Yes. Have you looked at some of these cars online, Katie? I'm sure you have in your research because my thinking when I've seen them is I quite like them.
3: Yeah, they look cool. I don't know. People... I don't know what people were expecting, but you look at it now and you think, yeah, it's a big, romping, stomping, you know, boat of a car, a whale of a thing, a whale with wheels. Uh, what was the problem? Yeah, you liked it.
1: Well, i tell you who else likes Edsels, as I'm <laughs> going to have to call them throughout this whole episode, and that is Dr. Kit Chapman, our guest for today. He is a journalist, a science historian, and the leader of the MA Journalism course at Falmouth University. Welcome, Kit. Thank you for having me. And it is Edsel, by the way. Okay, I might just refer to it as the car. (laughs) I still can't get the pronunciation right. So Kit, before we get into the history of this car, what it does to Ford, why it becomes such a monumental flop, do you like them? Would you have bought one? No, I would not have bought an Edsel. (gasps)
2: For for several reasons. I mean, we'll we'll go into sort of why, because again, that's part of the reason it fails. But it's not a nice looking car. Oh, Um, What you've got to look at with the Edsel is... If you take away the front grill, so the the famous thing about the Edsel was it had this vertical grille at the front, which depending on your opinion, it either looked like a toilet seat (laughs) or uh, a horse collar, or if you're being very rude, a part of a lady's anatomy. And this was not considered an attractive thing. But if you take that away, it looks like every other car from the late 1950s. It's just so generic. And it has certain features as well that don't really work. I'm not a fan of them.
3: Mm. So can you set the scene... Kit, for the introduction of the Edsel, what was going on at Ford Motors?
2: Okay, so let's let's sort of go right back to the start. So Ford Motor Company set up by Henry Ford, horrible man. He's a complete douche nozzle. We won't go into him too much. <laughs> he has a son called Edsel Ford. Edsel Ford takes over the company in 1919. And in the Second World War, Edsel basically uh, dies trying to win the war. I mean, he turns Ford into a production line for bombers. And in 1943, he dies. Dad has to take over the company again. But in 1945, Henry Ford II takes over. And this is Edsel's son. And he is going to revolutionize everything. He brings in a load of Air Force vets called the Whiz Kids. Uh, they're led by a guy called Tex Thornton, because it's cars. Of course, there's a guy called Tex somewhere in the mix. <laughs> and they start revolutionising Ford and turning its fortunes around. And as we come into the 1950s, they're looking at their main competitor, GM. Now, General Motors, GM, have five brands. They've got Chevy, they've got Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Buick, Cadillac. Ford only has three. It's got Ford, which is your basic brand, Mercury, which is your mid-range, and then it's got Lincoln. It also had something called Continental, but don't worry too much about that. In 1955, a guy called Ernest Breach, who is sort of the old school Ford guy, he starts interviewing people around, the, around America saying, what kind of car are you looking for? And because we're in the baby boomer generation, everyone's saying we want cheap, good cars for families. And so in 1955, they begin the e-car, the experimental car, and that's what becomes the Edsel.
1: Right, okay. And why is it such an attractive idea for Ford? And why not just make more cars under the existing brands that they've got? So they think they've got a a gap in their offering, basically. The problem is that if you've got a Ford,
2: you don't upgrade to a Mercury, you upgrade to an Oldsmobile. And so they're moving out of the Ford family, if you like. And so the idea is that if Ford starts this new brand, this new division, they can have a more complete market offering and people upgrade from Ford to Edsel and then ultimately maybe to Lincoln.
3: I want to get a sense of Americans taste in and expectations for automobiles.
2: Well, at the time in 1955, as I said, it's the baby boomer generation. So you're looking at a load of young families, raising kids, that kind of thing. And people want something that's reliable, um, something that's not completely cheap. They don't want sort of the bottom of the range. They're sort of moving and it's, it's about affluence and, uh, and sort of constantly moving up in social mobility. Now, so that's what they're looking for in 1955. The problem with Edsel is that expectations shift because we start getting into a recession, we'll come into this again, Um, and that really hampers
1: Edsel. So the problem is that the target almost shifts for Edsel. Okay. Um, Why are cars at this period in history, Kit, looking like they are? Because there's a huge (laughs) amount of metal in them. They all look sort of like spaceships, KT, in a good way, and they are absolutely massive. They are. They're absolutely huge.
2: So... At that time, we're, we're looking at a point where we don't have necessarily the technology to, to do compact. Um, we do start moving towards that into the 1960s. And also, people don't want compact cars in the 1950s. As I say, it's all about sort of showing up the Joneses next door. You want something big, you want something flashy, you want something that looks awesome. And that's why people still love 1950s styling to this day. They love those big wings, they love that sort of huge kind of powerful multicoloured pastel cars that, uh, that were driven around in the 1950s. It's all about style. Because we've moved out of the Second World War, we're into the 1950s, everyone's having a great time, we're looking for flashy cars.
3: Let's talk about the name Edsel, which doesn't exactly uh, trip off Tom's tongue. <laughs> par exemple, uh, marketing research manager David Wallace uh, had a notion, which was to hire a poet to submit quote inspirational names for the e car. So they hired the modernist poet Marianne Moore in 1955 to submit names. Now, what do you? What can you tell us about? Marianne Moore and and the name she submitted.
2: So, so Marianne Moore, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, you know, an excellent poet. Um, Probably not the person you want to name a car, though. Um, So, initially, Ford actually go in house, and they have a competition. They have six thousand names submitted, but none of them really sort of grab everybody. And there's a lot of argument. Edsel is one of those names that gets suggested, but the Ford family hate it. So. It's not actually nepotism. Uh, yeah, Henry Ford II famously said, I don't want my daddy's name dragged through the mud on a thousand hubcaps. Oh, yeah. literally. The Ford family were very, very... Yeah, exactly. Were completely against it. I mean, it has got a the surname on the front of the car. Well, I guess you can't avoid that really, can you, unfortunately? Um, but uh, Marianne Moore was... was basically contacted by letter, uh, as you say, to suggest a few names. And she came up with um, some interesting takes.
3: Oh, and, and before we go into the interesting takes, her, her marching orders was that she was invited to suggest words uh, that summed up, quote, elegance, fleetness, and advanced qualities and design. So let's talk through what she came up with.
2: Uh, well, she came up with a whole list. I mean, there's actually several letters. And, and she would later sort of add to these letters and send, can I just suggest this name as well? Um, so she came up with things like the Resilient Bullet, the Varsity Stroke, um, which I'm pretty sure is a sex act, yes. um, Civic, What? the Ford Silver Sword, oh. the Utopian Turtle Top. the Intelligent Whale... Uh, the Arken Seal, which is a rainbow, the Pastelogram, or the Turbo Talk. I mean, that's just a selection.
3: Oh my gosh, I'm getting slightly aroused uh, with all this dirty talk. My favourite in the list that I saw (laughs) is Thunder Blender.
1: (laughs) Sounds like I'm sitting with a rugby team and people are naming their penis in front of me.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I feel a little violated, but it's not a bad feeling. None of these uh, made the cut, though.
2: Absolutely not. So, as I said, the, the problem with Edsel is that nobody wanted to call it Edsel, but you've already got the E-car, because that's its codename. And so eventually you get this guy called Ernest Breach, who is sort of leading Edsel's charge. Now, he's a really interesting guy to himself. He was actually an ex-draftee in, the, in Major League Baseball uh, before he went into Ford. He was uh, with the St. Louis Browns, who become the Baltimore Orioles. Nice. Uh, Breach actually holds a board meeting when he knows Henry Ford II isn't there. And he gets through the name Edsel and thus we're landed with it. But that's not the only part of Edsel's naming that was terrible because they've got 18 models. Edsel isn't just one car. It's an entire division. It's an entire line of cars um, in the same way that you'd have Skoda or Seat or Volkswagen. And so they name all these models bizarre things. You've got the Edsel Roundup, the Edsel Villager, the Citation which is almost something you want to avoid when you're driving along, Um, the Ranger, and my personal favourite, the Edsel Bermuda. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Bermuda, but it is basically a sandbank in the middle of the Atlantic, owned by rich people and golf courses and all that kind of stuff. There's many things you can do on Bermuda, but driving isn't one of them. There is no reason to have a car. So... Strange names just haunted Edsel from the beginning.
3: Just as a side note, the poetess Marion Moore lived in Greenwich Village where she was known for wearing her tricorn hat and a black cape. And she was, (laughs) uh, she cut a dash, Tom. And also, Kit, uh, I learned that she was an admirer of Muhammad Ali and she wrote the liner notes for his spoken word album, I Am the Greatest. I've got that album. You do.
1: <laughs> I, have, I genuinely do have that help. I, I mean, I've got that tricorn and cape, so you know we're doing all right. Is it? I'm just wondering here to defend Ford a little bit here, Kit. Is it really hard naming cars? Like, are there a lot of very bad car names? I've I've heard the <laughs> the cases where someone has come up with one of those words that isn't a real word but works, and then someone who maybe speaks a different major language finds out that it means something entirely inappropriate.
2: Yeah, you get things like the, um, uh, the, the Nova, which turns out to mean doesn't go in, in Spanish, for example. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the classic examples is if you go right back to the start of motor racing. Um, and I don't mean the first race, but one of them. Um, There's a guy called Emil Jelinek. And at the time, you weren't supposed to race under your own name. It was considered a very sort of bad form. And so you had to come up with a pseudonym. And so people would race under the titles of the electric count. Uh, That was Gaston (laughs) de Chesloube-Lubert. You had the red devil. That was Camille Genazzi. And uh, Jelinek decided to race under his daughter's name, um, which is a little unusual. Um, And his daughter was Mercedes Jelinek. So Mercedes actually comes from the daughter of this a diplomat who didn't want to race under his own name.
1: Liking this fact, Katie.
3: So the insane marketing campaign that uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that kept the car's appearance a secret because this thing was years in development, wasn't it? Um,
2: yeah. So when we're talking 1955. We start doing it, and it's November 1957 that we begin producing for 1958.
3: Yeah. So uh, public's expectations are are being hyped, um, and I understand that there were all sorts of techniques and strategies like. You know, the cars are in the showroom, but they're under drop cloths. So they're uh-huh. just big lumpen blobs. And then sometimes there's these staged blurry photos of Edsels on the road before the launch. I mean, what, what was this doing to the public? Was this exhausting them or was it exciting them?
2: The idea was to try and excite them, entice them, you know, that we've got this thing, it's going to be space age, it's going to be revolutionary. And again, this is all from the market research they did in 1955. Everyone was saying, we want something modern and futuristic and different. Um, but they weren't showing anything. They were showing these blurs in magazines. They were showing these things under wraps. Um, and they're all building up to E-Day, um, which they were going to say was this sort of this huge launch. And they do support it with full media. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy what they actually came up with. But... In terms of the public, the public just didn't understand what the offering was. It was creating confusion. And that's one of the big problems that Edsel has. When Edsel launches, no one's sure if it's better than a Ford, if it's the same as a Ford, if it's better than a Lincoln. You know, where does this fit into the market? And ultimately, am I going to trust an entirely new brand or shall I go with something that I've driven for years? And so what they were finding was that people weren't going to Edsel. They were going to sort of established brands because they couldn't understand what it was. So they introduced it incredibly badly to the public. Um, But then again, as
1: I say, E-Day launches, and this is when we go full blast. One of the ways that they publicise it, Kit, is an extraordinary TV programme called The Edsel Show. (laughs) It's an hour-long special on CBS. It's hosted by some decent names, to be fair to Ford. Bing Crosby, the guests are Sinatra, Louis Armstrong, Rosemary Clooney, who I was less familiar with. Um, is this the normal sort of way that you would launch a car on our T V special? Absolutely not. This is, this is the car of the
2: future, and so they have gone all in. And again, one of the big problems Edsel has is that it builds up so much hype. It spends so much money, actually, with this marketing campaign that it's almost doomed to failure from the start. If you think about like a, a box office movie, they've got to recoup almost sort of an extra 50% of costs because of the way that they market the movie. It's exactly the same thing for cars. And so they almost build up too much expectation. And then if they don't get the sales, they're not going to do it. But The Edsel Show was this all-singing, all-dancing extravaganza. It's got sort of horrible little sort of set pieces where Frank Sinatra comes out and says, Shall I sing? And Bob Bing Crosby goes, Well, do you really have to? I thought you (laughs) could just do something in the street or something. Uh, Bob Hope turns up as, as in the middle of a set at one point, sort of interrupts the show. Hello, everyone, I'm Bob Hope. And then he wanders off again. Um, this is actually the first ever video as well. So the Edsel show was going out live to most of America, but on the West Coast, it, it couldn't because it just time frames. And so they actually taped the show and then played the tape for the West Coast. So it is the world's first videotape.
3: One detail that I enjoyed was that the Glenn Miller band was on and they (laughs) had to have the GMs on their podiums covered up because GM was also General Motors, just a dink. Uh, One
2: one of the horrible things about this particular show, though, is that they do have these little sort of sets where they're showing off the the Edsel. And there's this horrible skit where they go into the audience and there's a young man and a young woman and, uh, and the man's going, can you turn on this light, darling? And she presses it and goes, well if you can turn on a light even you can drive an edsel yeah. you know there's this horrible sort of
1: 1950s sexism going on there's also a code of this from rosemary Clooney, and she says um, the only edsel i ever saw was the one they gave me to drive while i was rehearsing i came out of the cbs building and mr ford was right behind me heading for his edsel i opened the door of my car and the handle came off and i turned to mr ford holding it out to him and said about your car. Yeah, I mean,
2: the Edsels were not well made. And again, we can come into some of the details of, of what's going on here. Uh, but the problem with the Edsels is that they were being produced in the same factories as Fords and Mercury's. And so what you'd have is the factory would be producing 60 Fords, and then they would stop and change and make, a Mer- uh, make a, uh, an Edsel. Sorry. And people didn't like doing that. Um, And it was confusing the workers and the workforce. Now Ford was famous because they set up these production lines. That was the big innovation that Henry Ford came up with. Um, The idea was cheap cars and well-paid workers. And if you're annoying your workers, they start sort of taking shortcuts. They don't get things right. Apparently some of them were even putting like nuts and bolts inside the doors deliberately so that when customers drove away, it started to rattle and you could never get rid of the noise. So the Edsels were not well-made cars even though they were supposed to be this car of the future.
3: Well, we've discussed how the puckered mouth grille was especially mocked. But what else was distinctive about the Edsel, both good and bad?
2: Well, there's quite a few aspects to it. So let's start on the outside. You've got the the grille, which nobody liked. You also have boomerang-shaped taillights. And this really confused people because they'd never seen them before. Because if you were indicating to go left, the boomerang pointed that you were going right. And so no one was quite sure. If you imagine the boomerang sort of inverted. And so that was confusing people. You had a gearbox on the steering wheel. Um, The idea was that this was safer because you wouldn't have to take off your hands from the wheel. Um, And again, so simple, even a woman can do it, was the sort of the the slogan. Um, The problem was that people would reach for the horn and they would change gear, which is not necessarily what you want to do. You'd end up going in reverse. Also, the wiring wasn't great. Because you're looking at this point in the 1950s where they don't quite have the tech right, the wiring's too close in the, in, the, in the gearbox transmission, and so they're starting to melt. You've also got a motor that isn't powerful enough to bring the car out of park if it's on a hill. So there's a whole host of problems just there. Um, you've got this very, very weird speedometer. So if you think about your, your standard speed speedometer, you've got a, an arrow and it shows you what speed you're going. Not in an Edsel. In front of the uh, the driver, there was this rotating disc, kind of like a compass on an airplane, if you imagine. It tells you which direction it spins that way or, let, or that way. And this was how they told how fast you were going. And you could set it to glow red if you reached a certain speed. So <laughs> <laughs> it would start flashing red like, like the bat signal or something like that um, <laughs> if you reached 55 miles an hour. Um, there was... Uh, Some good features, though. It has to be said, I mean, the Edsel was ahead of its time. And and part of this is this guy called Robert McNamara, who's in charge of the lifeguard, the Ford lifeguard system. And so they've got rear seatbelts. They've got childproof locks. They've got a remote operated boot. They've got self-adjusting brakes. There's some really good ideas in the Edsel. The problem is there's just a lot of bad ones as well.
3: So you just mentioned Robert McNamara there. He was one of the whiz kids who reformed the chaotic admin at the company with modern planning and management control systems. Let's let's get into him because he has kind of an interesting, I won't say backstory, I guess it's a forward story. That might be the thing. What's his deal?
2: Yeah, bad Bobby Maccles, uh, which nobody ever called him because <laughs> he was an immensely boring man. Um, so Robert McNamara as you're right, he was a whiz kid. He was in the Air Force during the Second World War. Um, His job was actually um, essentially planning for bombers. And so he was in charge of getting them over what was called the Hump, which was this area in Burma where they couldn't control it. And so he was supplying China. He helped improve um, bomber effectiveness, things like that. But uh, he goes into work for Ford and he revolutionizes everything with computers. He is a numbers guy.
3: So was it true that he was the first guy to kind of bring computers to corporations? Like he introduced the spreadsheet?
2: Absolutely. So when you think about computers, people often think they've been around for years. I mean, obviously, we're talking about them and being initially invented and used during the Second World War. And it's only afterwards um Generally, they're developed in sort of laboratories. There's a guy called John Goodenough who won the Nobel Prize only a couple of years ago uh, for lithium-ion batteries. He invents RAM at the end of the 1940s, start of the 1950s. So this is really pioneering stuff. And to take it out of the lab and out of the government and start using it in companies is really revolutionary. And so Robert McNamara is changing the face of how people do business. And that's why he sort of shoots up the company um, to the point that he actually becomes president of Ford. Because, as we say, we we need to sort of fast forward a little bit past Edsel. So after Edsel, he actually becomes president of Ford. He lasts a whole six weeks before he gets a phone call um, from a man with a very stern Boston accent who says, hello, I'm Robert Kennedy. Would you like to come and work for my brother? And so he ends up as defense secretary to JFK. Now, that is quite a jump up. And actually, he becomes the longest serving defense secretary in U.S. history. He is the guy uh, at the Cuban Missile Crisis. He recommends doing the blockade. He's the guy that launches Project 100, which is about lowering the IQ standards of the U.S. Army to ramp up the number of people you can get involved. He is one of the main instigators of I don't know if you've heard of this, a little conflict called Vietnam. Um, he recommends sort of getting more troops in there because he wants to stop communism dead. And the key thing to remember about McNamara is he is always about numbers. He is the ultimate bean counter. So he is not actually looking at anything to do with morale, anything to do with you know, how people are reacting. With Edsel, it's just numbers to him. It's just sales sheets. And I think my favorite moment is in the 1970s, someone actually tries to throw him off a ferry. <laughs> um, in, Martha's, in Martha's vineyard, they, they sort of corner him and try and throw him off about the Vietnam War. But later on, he does, he does write in his memoirs that he completely regrets his role in starting, essentially, the Vietnam War. Well, there was but- that
3: very famous fog of war documentary about him. But uh, yeah, his beloved computer models were grossly in error during the Vietnam War. And, and the numbers really let him down and everybody else.
2: They do. And he, it's it's one of those strange things in that there's this, this guy sitting somewhere who essentially was an accountant. I mean, that's that's his area of expertise. And yet he had an impact on so many different parts of the late 20th century. He's almost one of those figures of the late 20th century that people don't know about, probably because he's a very boring individual. He's not charismatic at all. Um, but he affected our lives in so many different ways.
1: We meet Katie, don't we, in the course of recording this show, characters like McNamara, who we might not know much about, but also link together different aspects of topics that Billy has touched on. So I found out that one of the reasons why Robert McNamara joined Ford in the first place was to pay for his wife's medical bills after she had caught polio.
2: He himself had polio as well. It wasn't just his wife. So his wife got it very seriously. He he had a minor case of polio. But that wasn't uncommon at the time uh, in the 1940s.
1: This is an advertisement from Better Help Therapy Online. Hello Fire listeners, it's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about Help. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash wdstf. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So, last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long plus you can customize your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking what are you waiting for head to factormeals.com/wdstf50 and use the code wdstf50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormealscom WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Okay, so you've got the brains of McNamara and you have all the money of the Ford Motor Corporation. Why, Kit, is no one looking at this project and going, whoa, this looks bad, this is getting
2: worse. I mean, I wish I had the brains of McNamara and the money of the Ford Motor Company. Um, people are looking at it from the completely wrong perspective, um, because they're looking at the data from the 1955 surveys that they did. And take, making a car takes a long time, that's not unusual. But the problem is that the goalposts have changed, and they're not doing any modern market research. They're not asking people in 1957, what kind of car would you buy? And things have changed because there's a recession. People want smaller cars. And so things like the Volkswagen Beetle starts becoming a huge bestseller because people want those compact cars. So you're launching a huge, stylish, futuristic car at a time when nobody wants to buy that. So that's one of the issues. The other thing is you've got these massive divisions within Ford itself. So as I mentioned, you've got the whiz kids and McNamara. You've also got the old guard like Ernest Breach. They're constantly arguing with each other and having difficult times of it. And so because you've got those internal divisions, because you haven't got that outside perspective, because you're not looking at for things, you're not seeing them. And as soon
1: as they start producing the Edsels, they just don't sell as much as they need to. When do they start realising that things have gone badly wrong? When do they start pulling the ripcord? Pretty much
2: immediately. Um, So what they need to do is essentially sell 2,500 Edsels. um, And when they get to get going November 1957 to 1959, they get 68,000. So they are underselling hugely, almost from day one. They are just not getting getting enough. Um, In total, they actually produce only... um, I think it's one hundred and eighteen thousand cars, and that's from nineteen fifty-seven to nineteen fifty-nine. And there are a couple of, of uh, only a couple of thousand of the sixty models. They don't really produce many of them at all. So they never make the figures that they need to. And this is again like one of those box office flops. So even though this is one of the biggest car launches in history, even though in terms of raw numbers, this is one of the biggest car launches ever made. Um, you know, it's never been surpassed they need to make far more money than they're actually doing. It's like the Lord of the Rings. If the Lord of the Rings hadn't performed well at the cinema, it would have flopped. Um, Perhaps Edsel's best compared to something like John Carter. You know, it did make money at the box office, it just didn't make enough.
3: So what was McNamara's solution to this?
2: Well, McNamara, he's all about his spreadsheets and he's looking at it, the numbers do not add up. So the first thing he wants to do is bring the Um, The Edsel, the Mercury, and the Lincoln together in one division. And so he creates this Mel division uh, in 1958, and he's got his his little red pen out and his computers, he's typing up the numbers, and he doesn't like the way that they're being produced. So he changes uh, the the design of the Edsel to get rid of uh, having any kind of different wheelbase. And so the Edsels for the later modules actually completely change because they're now being built on Ford models. So very similarly, and just bringing everything together. But by 1959, he's going into uh, Henry Ford II's office and saying, numbers still don't add up. You know, we've sold in sort of 1958, like 47,000 or something like that, because in total, they only make about uh, 100,000 sales. And he just says, number doesn't add up. We need to close it down. And he shuts it down. And a loss um, to the Ford Motor Company of about 350 million US dollars, In 1950s money.
3: Oh, wow.
2: Today, that's about 2.4 billion. U.S. dollars. Ouch!
3: Oh, that's got to smart. So before he mothballed the line, what you're saying is that it was the Edsel was sort of a Frankenstein monster of different and cheaper Ford parts. I mean, it, it wasn't even a distinct car by that stage.
2: Exactly, and in fact, the Edsel cars are, are later used for two different models. They are used for the Ford Comet and the Ford Falcon, and the Ford Falcon becomes incredibly popular because it's that more compact design. So the fact that we're moving to these smaller cars. Edsel's parts are actually used for that Um, so I mean a lot of cars are sort of Frankenstein's monsters that's not uncommon in the car industry but yeah Edsel basically just closes down that's the end of it
3: it seems like they missed a trick perhaps if they had just brought out a newer friskier smaller cuter model like the Falcon and said this is the new hip Edsel get on the gravy train people Absolutely.
2: It's entirely possible that the Edsel could have continued to survive. I mean, this isn't the stupidest idea that Ford ever had. Ford Motor Company had a lot of crazy ideas. My particular favorite, um, we're going off on a little bit of a tangent. They built um, an entire city in the middle of the Amazon jungle. Um, So this is Fordlandia. And they built it in the 1920s to try and get rubber. Uh, They were not great with names. And the problem with Ford is that they run things the Ford way. So they brought in Ford Motor experts to run a rubber plantation in the middle of the Amazon jungle. And of course, they plant trees in the wrong place. They have ants eating their crops. They can't use sort um, of tractors because they've built it on hilly landscape that just doesn't suit that. And they annoy the workers because they insist that you have to do things the American way. And so they're telling Brazilians that you can't play soccer. Um, you can't be with ladies. Um, they have to send them off to a little separate island. You're not allowed to drink because this is in the middle of prohibition. And worst of all, you have to eat hamburgers. Ugh. And the Brazilians revolt. They actually have this, this revolt called the Breaking Pans where they force the Ford experts into the jungle. And the Brazilian army have to be called in to kind of quell the workers because they're refusing to eat hamburgers.
3: That's so funny. <laughs> they got the, the ladies versus hamburgers ratio completely mixed up. <laughs>
1: That's happened, Katie. <laughs> So Kit, this becomes a byword for corporate disasters. Has there been anything subsequently in the motor industry as catastrophic as the Edsel?
2: I mean, in terms of overall the motor industry, probably not. Uh, I'm just trying to think of, of examples in terms of the UK, maybe British Leyland and the way that that was all handled and with the strikes, things like that. But in terms of sheer amount of money spent and trying to start this new brand and just flopping, doesn't even come close. But it's important to remember that the uh, recession that happened in the late 1950s didn't just take out Edsel. Um, It also took out uh, Studebaker, which I know is also in the song. Studebaker have to basically join with another company. They drag it into the 1960s just, but that's the end of them. So it's not just Edsel that's a fatality of this recession.
3: So I'm wondering if it hadn't been for these production delays, um, a little bit of aesthetic dissonance and the 1958 recession, could the Edsel have had a chance? I mean, was the car really all that terrible? I've heard it described as the right car at the wrong time
2: it had so many good ideas that it could have worked and if they had continued to put money into it if they had continued to make changes there's no reason that it couldn't have sort of turned things around eventually the problem is as you say it was it was the right car at the wrong time it was a car that had so many good features the problem is the tech didn't match it the customer expectations didn't match The customers couldn't understand what the offering was and people were still moving out of Ford and ultimately you have McNamara who is not looking at any kind of romance. He is just looking at the numbers and
1: he hacks it to death. We need to turn our attention at this point, Katie, to an episode of The Simpsons, which is called The Homer, which spoofs Edsel magnificently. This is where Homer's half-brother, Herb, who is played by Danny DeVito extremely well. Um, Herb runs a motor car corporation and decides to let Homer design the car, saying, we want the type of car Americans really want, not the type that we tell them they want, to which Homer comes up with a car that is, quote, powerful like a gorilla, yet soft and yielding like a Nerf ball. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> that is fantastic. I mean, it, it's absolutely a cultural meme for failure. Many, many years before The Simpsons, Tom, uh, the Ho Chi Minh Museum in Hanoi features an Edsel crashing through a wall, and that is intended to symbolically represent U.S. military failure in the Vietnam War, so that neatly ties in the Edsel, American culture, and Robert McNamara.
2: Absolutely, I mean it's a genius sort of thing to sort of illustrate the the failings of uh, of America in that particular war and, and things like that. And uh, and absolutely, McNamara is blamed for the Edsel. He's not actually uh, part of the design process, but. Um, When it comes to Johnson's uh, campaigns uh, after Kennedy's assassination, and Johnson's trying to get a a full term in office, um, Goldwater attacks McNamara.
3: Senator Goldwater, who's uh, also running for president. Is that right?
2: Exactly. He's the rival candidate. And he's attacking McNamara saying, yeah, well, this is the guy that brought you the Edsel. Completely untrue, but it's it's a good attack campaign. And it resonates with people. People still remember the Edsel in the mid-60s and are sort of going, yeah, maybe, maybe not.
3: So I do remember when I was a kid, my mother talking about the Edsel um, and mocking it, and that this would have been in the '70s. And I do remember her specifically saying, "Oh yeah, that front grill—it looked like uh, someone's mouth puckering up after eating a lemon." <laughs> so like everybody just knew that it was ridiculous. Like even if they they didn't even have to think about it, it was just assumed. Like oh yeah, that's ugly.
2: It's, it's really interesting because the, that kind of vertical grille is used on a lot of European cars. And it becomes very distinctive and sort of, yeah, you know, there are brands that have made an icon out of their, their their vertical grill in the same way that Edsel was trying to. They were trying to do something different. I think the big problem is that they kind of made it into this 3D thing. So the grill is, is inset a little bit. So you've got these kind of lips. And as I said, <laughs> mm. depending on how you interpret it, it can be all kinds of different lips.
3: I don't know why uh, some lady lips wouldn't be a gimme for selling cars. I mean, my goodness, there's enough phallic styling going on and uh, all sorts of industrial design. I don't know why the the ladies' uh, secret gardens shouldn't get a look in.
1: Katie, when we did our episode on Studebaker all those years and months ago, episode 10, and we spoke to the lovely Greg Diffin, who was editor of the Studebaker Owners Club in the UK, he was one of a few people who still drove the Studebaker Avanti and still had a place in his heart for it. So, Kit, are there people who still love their Edsels? Is there an Edsel owner's club? Are there people, maybe even in this country, who might tootle about the suburban streets in an Edsel?
2: There are There are definitely people who are into their Edsels. So the Edsel has become a bit of a collector's item, particularly because there's only about 10,000 of them left. And so there's not a lot of them there. They're quite expensive to buy and, and purchase if you want to get an Edsel, particularly if it's a 1960s Edsel. As I said, there was only a couple of thousand of them made. There's only a couple of hundred left. And so they're incredibly valuable for car collectors, but there are people who absolutely adore the Edsel. Um, and if that's your thing, then great. I mean, personally, not a fan. But if you're into in that kind of thing, then some people are. Then that's that's all good, as far as
1: I'm concerned.
3: I'll tell you what. I'd be very interested in owning an Edsel if only it were called a Thunder Blender.
1: <laughs> when was the last time you owned a Thunder Blender, Katie?
3: I I own one right now. I'm sitting on it. <laughs>
1: Kit, it's been wonderful having you on the show to tell us all about Edsel, not least how to pronounce it for me. Um, if people would like to hear more from you, your recent book, Racing Green, talks about motorsport science and how it changes the world, I believe. That's it, yeah. So if you're into
2: motorsport and you're kind of curious about green technologies that have spun out of racing, then please buy Racing Green. I'd very much appreciate it. Kit, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
1: Katie, you know there's certain episodes that we look forward to because they are topics that we are interested in before. I've got to say, I really enjoyed today's because I knew nothing about Edsel, and now I do.
3: This is one of those uh, wings of a butterfly affecting world events for years and years afterward with the introduction of Robert McNamara into the corporate structure there at Ford Motor Company. So... um yeah, he had kind of a, a bad impact on world events. If only the poet Marianne Moore had more of an impact <laughs> with her utopian turtle tops and her mongoose civics and her varsity strokes, I think we'd be a better <laughs> place or at least more satisfied.
1: They sound to me, Katie, like our crime fighting alter egos. I like to think of myself as resilient bullet, I like to think of you as utopian turtle top.
3: I don't know whether to be flattered or aghast, but um, I do think of you as intelligent whale.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much.
3: If you want another podcast to listen to, I think you'll really love The Joe Marler Show. There are so many interview podcasts where famous people ask other famous people about being famous, but this one, believe me, is different. England rugby player Joe Marler is meeting normal people because everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. Joe, along with guess who, Tom Fordyce. Tom, who are you guys speaking to?
1: Katie, people from all walks of life, we've spoken to teachers, to tattoo artists, to chefs and psychopath experts.
3: Well, I think you'll love the guests. You'll love Joe. And you know you love Tom. I certainly do. Just search for The Joe Marler Show in your podcast app.
1: A little reminder, if you'd like to follow us on the socials, we are at Spread That Fire KTP. Where are we going next week?
3: Next week, we're going to go to U2, and that is not Joshua Tree U2. That is not Unforgettable Fire U2. That is not... It's a beautiful day, you 2 Is that a U2 song?
1: It is. It's not men in their 60s who are still using the sort of nicknames they had in their teens.
3: No, it's not. It is the thing that perhaps the band U2 based their name on, the spy plane.
1: It's a big one, Katie. It's a massive Cold War incident. I'm looking forward to it.
3: Crowd Network.
0: And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present,